Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. The, the common objections to the idea of free grace. Now, I realize that a lot of this could be treated at a, at a very deeper academic level, and it is in some of the books out there, because some theologians are attacking the idea of free grace and our theology at that level, and we're answering at that level. But I wanted to do more of a popular way that, that you'll encounter in churches and with people uh, as uh, in, in circles that you move around, because most of you probably are not involved in seminary education, I'm assuming. And, uh, and some of you may be even exposed to the free grace message for the first time here, and you're going to meet objections about it uh, that you'll commonly hear. So I want to deal about it on a common level, but re recognize that all of these can also be dealt with on a deeper theological level. So uh, I've chosen six, but there are many more. And the first one that you'll often hear is that this view called free grace is just easy believism. Another term that people use is um, decisionism. And for example, let me quote many contemporary gospel. This is from uh, Kenneth Gentry, who wrote an article a long time ago against the free grace position and um, promoting lordship salvation. And then he's turned it into a book. And uh, he says, many contemporary gospel presentations. By the way, when they say contemporary gospel presentations in these discussions, guess what they mean? They're talking about they're talking about free grace theology 99% of the time, uh, but they just kind of put us in with everybody else that might really be teaching other errant gospels. Uh, many contemporary gospel presentations can be summarized by the phrase, only believe. The concept of faith in Christ, often associated with only believe preaching, is sometimes termed easy believism. And that's from his book that he um, turned his article into this book. Well, so how do we answer easy believism? Well, I have some simple answers here that I think that would serve you well. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's easy to believe. Uh, I'm going to say it's simple to believe, but I don't think it's easy to believe. And when you think about it, it's not easy to believe that for some people that I'm a sinner, that I deserve to go to hell. It's not easy to believe that God loves me enough that he would send his son to die for me. It's not easy to believe that Jesus was the God divine man who died on the cross for me. It's not easy to believe that something he did 2,000 years ago would apply to me today. It's not easy to believe that he rose from the dead. It's not easy to believe he would give me eternal life as an absolutely free gift, and so on. It's not really easy to believe. I, I sometimes, but it's simple. Now, there really is a, a semantical difference between the meaning of easy and simple. Easy means, without, uh, easy means without difficulty. Simple means singular or single. So there really is a semantic difference in the meaning of those words. So I say it is simple to believe. Believe. Salvation is simple. You believe. And I sometimes use an illustration of my wife... Uh, bought me a gift certificate to skydive on my 40th birthday. And uh, so we went through the ground instruction, and they do a tandem dive where the guy straps himself to your back, and he teaches you how to jump out of the airplane on the ground and so forth. And then you start 
and you know you think you got it all under control then you start spiraling up and when you get a couple thousand feet up and you look down you suddenly start changing your mind about this and the little airplane has no door on it and so you're you know you're just exposed to this drop and i tell you i still i really wanted to change my mind at this point and try to talk him out of it but when we reached 10,000 feet he said just like he trained me one two three jump and he pushed me out the door I didn't have much chance it's simple to fall out of an airplane but it's not easy it's not easy and so uh, we have to distinguish between that easy believism no it's not easy to believe but it is simple believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved that's a singular condition it is simple we have to agree to that and I like to ask people how difficult is Acts 16.31? How difficult do you want to make it? And of course, what, what our uh, antagonists would do, or those who want to attack the position would do, is they would have to read stuff into the passage that Paul was uh, saying, well, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is make him your Lord, and things like that. But that's what we call eisegesis. Uh, but how simple is John 3.16? that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And you could go to so many other verses that talk about the simple condition of belief. How difficult is it? It doesn't help that people are writing books uh, like Hard to Believe, John MacArthur. Salvation is more complicated than you think, Alan Stanley. Or the newest one, uh, Salvation by Allegiance is what it's called, The Gospel of Allegiance by Matthew Bates. Um, where it's not by faith that you're saved, but faith means allegiance, pledging yourself to Jesus as Lord. And so it all becomes very complicated, but here's what bothers me the most. Why in the world would God make salvation difficult? How can they answer that? Why would God make salvation difficult? The God of the universe created us. He loves us. We fell away from him. We're separated. He wants us back. He's the God of love. He's the God of all grace. He did everything he could to the extent of sending his own son to die for us. But now he's going to make it hard for us to be saved. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work is done. Now all you have to do is believe. And yet people want to come along and say, no, it, it's not that easy. Not as easy as you think. It's not as simple as you think. You have to do this and that and make commitments and so forth. I think it denigrates the character of God and the love of God and his purpose for mankind. In the passages in the scriptures that we know, God loves the whole world. John 3.16, he wants all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. He's the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10. Why would he make it difficult? I don't know how they'd answer that, frankly. So that's how I'd answer that objection. You might have some other things you can add, and we'll hopefully have some time for your interaction at the end. Another objection we run into is um, that free grace believes someone can reject Jesus as Lord but still be saved. So I have a quote here from Kenneth Gentry again, and then one from A.W. Tozer. Gentry says, the non-lordship, get that, the non-lordship, Persuasion emphatically teaches that it is not necessary to commit one's life to Christ in the act of receiving him as Savior. Now, we actually 
agree with that, except for the term non-lordship. Um, A.W. Tozer is not quite as generous. He says, a notable heresy has come into being throughout our evangelical Christian circles. Now, let's be very clear. He's talking about the free grace view in his book, I Call It Heresy. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. And what's the impression that these quotes give to you? And this objection is that you can believe in Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to serve him as Lord. The impression given is that that's what we teach. <laughs> so how do we answer that? Well, I'd like to know who teaches that. Do you teach that, that you don't have to believe that serve Jesus as Lord? I know you teach it not to be saved. We don't teach that. You have to do that to be saved. But is that part of your gospel? You can believe in Jesus and be saved today, and you don't have to serve him. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. We deal with that as a separate issue when it comes up. In fact, I think, I truly believe it's implicit in people's decision to believe when they realize we're sinners separated from God, God loves us and wants the best for us and died for us on the cross. I think it's implicit in the decision that I'm going to serve that kind of a person. But who teaches that? No, nobody teaches that. And yet they call our view the no-lordship view, the non-lordship view, as if we offer it as an option of some kind. So I say, hey, Jesus is Lord. Uh, I reject the term non-lordship view, no-lordship view that John MacArthur uses. Jesus has to be God to be Savior. He has to be divine to be Savior. He had to be divine to take on a body of human flesh, to become a sacrifice that would be eternal. He had to be divine to rise from the dead. He has to be divine to save us today, thousands of years later, or thousands of years before, throughout history. An eternal sacrifice, and the high priest, it all depends on his divinity. Jesus has to be the Lord God to be our Savior. But the command to serve him as Lord is not part of the saving gospel. Implicit in the gospel, but it's not explicit. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The way we would read it is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference in emphasis there. So there is a difference between the objective lordship of Christ and our subjective response. Jesus is Lord. We all agree to that. Jesus is God. That's how he can be our savior. No one would dispute that in free grace circles. The, the difference is, do we have to subject ourselves to his mastery in order to be saved? And so there's a difference between who he is and how we respond to that. How we respond to that is an issue of sanctification, of course, not an issue of salvation. In salvation, I believe we recognize his deity or we recognize his transcendency as the Son of God, and, and that part is important. But it's not a call to submit ourselves to him. What does an unsafe person know about submitting themselves to Jesus as Lord anyway? What do they know? What would a pagan Roman guard know about what Jesus demands of his life and what he has to submit to him? Does he know that he needs to, to pay taxes and and uh, uh, deny himself and take up the cross. He wouldn't know any of that. So um, 
there's a difference between the objective lordship of Christ and our subjective response. Now, for example, um, if we were to go up to somebody who's uh, political season here, so if somebody's tearing down Trump banners and posters, and we were to say, uh, who's the president of the United States? They would say, well, it's Trump right now. Well, is he your president? Uh, they might say, no, he's not my president, but the truth is that he is their president. Objectively speaking, Trump is the president of the United States, whether you like it or not. He's the president of the United States. Whether you choose to submit to that is a subjective decision. It's your response to his objective position. Same thing. Jesus is Lord no matter how we choose to respond to it. And our response to it is our decision. And some people respond more quickly than others, more completely than others. And when it comes to self, the salvation issue, some people, I think, get it right away. Jesus loves me. He's, he's God, and I want to serve him if, if he saves me. And they don't need to be instructed so much uh, as, as, as they, they do just from their, um, their intuition about what God wants from them. Some, though, will need to be instructed about what God wants them to do with their lives. And we deal with those issues as they come up. But the issue is that mastery is not the, not the issue in salvation. The issue in salvation is that we have a Savior from sin. And Jesus as Savior is the issue, not Jesus as Master. Jesus as Master is a sanctification issue, a Christian life issue. So the issue, the, the objection that free grace believes someone can reject Jesus as Lord and still be saved, uh, I don't see anybody teaching that, and I don't know how that exactly would work. I've never had anybody say, well, I'll believe in him for salvation, but I'm not going to follow him at all. Have you ever had anybody say that? I've never had anybody say that. I have had people say, well, if I believe in Jesus, does that mean I have to stop drinking and run around with women? And I said, well, you know, God loves you, and he doesn't make that a condition for salvation, but he wants the best for you, and he, he wants to do what's best for you, and he'll, he, he probably would, he will tell you that that lifestyle is not good for you. And, and I've actually had people say, well, but I'm not interested. So you deal with the issue if it comes up, but you let them know it is, it is a distinct issue from uh, Jesus as Savior. Okay? So a third objection is that um, free grace does not teach that a sinner must turn from sins or repent, is that word they say we don't teach repentance to be saved. Now here's a quote from Wayne Grudem, who really kind of attacks me on this issue. He says, free grace theology weakens the gospel message by avoiding any call to unbelievers to repent of their sins. And the emphasis is his. And repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So he's defined repentance kind of carefully. He kind of tries to avoid using the idea that repentance is actually turning from sins, but he takes you right up to that point that if you are repentant and sorrowful, you're going to walk in obedience. So uh, he, he kind of brings those ideas together pretty carefully. But his constant uh, criticism in his book, um, Grace Theology, Five Ways It Diminishes the Gospel, is, is that we don't teach repentance. And in fact, that's the criticism we get from many, many quarters. And uh, uh, how do we answer that then? Well, 
First of all, if repentance is turning from sins, then uh, they're right. We don't teach that. Now, you, you understand that within the free grace circle, there's a number, probably four or five different views of what repentance means. Okay, I have my view that I, I hold. Um, there are others in this room who hold different views. There, there are some in the action free grace circles that believe repentance is all, always means a turning from sin. Uh, but then they say that it has nothing to do with the gospel. Okay. So uh, I, I don't believe that. I don't think that the, all the contexts support that, that repentance is a broad word and you have to define it in the context. Um, there are others who believe that repentance uh, is a, me, means a sorrow for sin and a willingness to turn from sin. Uh, um, that's not a bad idea. I think, though, that the Greek has a better word for sorrow that it uses uh, instead of meta, metanoeo, it's um, metamelomai. And um, my view is that repentance is a change of mind or a change of heart, an inner change. The, the important thing in the free grace view is that we separate it from the outward actions. Uh, we don't make repent, repentance defined by the outward actions. Why else would John the Baptist say in Matthew 3 or Luke chapter 3 do, to the Pharisees, do works befitting repentance? So he tells them to repent and then do works befitting repentance. So he himself separates repentance from the works. And so does Acts 26 and Acts 20, I think 21, and several other places. I don't have time to go into all the, all the passages here. Um, but there are different views in the free grace perspective. And I think what we need to understand is that when, the way I understand it as a change of mind, when somebody believes in Jesus Christ, they have changed their mind about something that has kept them from salvation. Maybe they've finally come to believe that they're a sinner. Maybe they finally believe that God loves them. Maybe they finally believe that Jesus' sacrifice paid for them. There's something in their thinking that has changed. And that's what metanoia essentially means, a change of mind. Uh, so when somebody believes, I think it encompasses the idea of a change in, of mind. But repentance can be used, of course, in a lot of different ways that don't lead to salvation. They can change their mind about a lot of things and not be saved, just like a person can believe in a lot of things and not be saved. But I think there's an overlap semantically, and I think there are some verses that show that in the Scriptures. Um, how would anyone know when he's turned from all his sins anyway, or, or her sins anyway, to be inclusive? Um, it's a bit subjective because we're not even conscious of all of our sins. So when have I fully repented? Uh, repentance for me has been a process. Uh, I repented of most of my sins before I was saved. I cut my long hair, stopped doing drugs, stopped drinking and all that before I was saved. Because I knew I got the idea that it was wrong and I was going to die like my friend just died. My 18-year-old friend died. I was 18 years old. I said, I'm going to die if I start doing this stuff, keep doing this stuff. So I stopped that stuff. I repented of those sins, but I wasn't saved. Then after I got saved, I started changing my behavior in other areas. But I'm still changing today. And my wife tells me I need to repent more. So how do, I, how do you know when you repented enough? Don't ask your wife or husband. I've had several people contact me, really sorrowful things they've said. One fellow, who he says, I've repented of my sins. I've gone back and apologized to the women that I've you know, defrauded, and, and yet I still lust after women, and I've slipped a couple times. Am I, am I saved? I don't think I've repented of this. Another fellow uh, says, I, 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 
I've tried, I've gone to this church. He keeps telling us we need to repent of all of our sins. And I've, I've done everything I can think of. I've, I've even sold my house and gone back and made reparations to people with, with the money I made off my house. And I still don't know if I'm saved, if I fully repented until he discovered the free grace message and he got all cleared up. So how do you really know when you've turned from all your sins? A fourth objection. Free grace believes a saved person does not have to show evidence of good works. And they usually, so I inserted it, they usually insert James 2, 14 through 26 there, that faith without works is dead. So they say that we're misunderstanding that passage or not appreciating that passage. So a saved person doesn't have to show evidence of good works. Now, my first answer to this is, well, who says that? Do you say that? You can be saved and not show good. We don't deal with the issue sometimes about good works, but I don't tell people you don't have to. Look, you can be saved and you don't have to do anything. I don't tell That's not my gospel. Uh, so who's, who exactly is saying that? Uh, they're kind of creating this straw man. We don't say that. Um, Oh, there's a quote there from John, uh, John MacArthur. Not all faith is redemptive. James 2, 14 through 26 says, without faith without works is dead and cannot save, yet some in contemporary evangelicalism, that again is free grace he's talking about, you know. Um, I refuse to allow for any kind of relationship between faith and works, and that's from the gospel according to Jesus. We refuse to allow any kind of relationship between faith and works. John MacArthur loves to set up these straw men and torture them so easily. That's kind of his technique. Uh, who teaches that? And uh, and we re and that and does anybody here refuse to see a relationship between faith and good works? We we can read Hebrews eleven by faith Abraham obeyed. That doesn't make faith and obedience the same thing, but it does tell us that there's a relationship between faith and obedience. When we believe in something, we usually act on it, right? So there is a relationship between faith and obedience. Uh, now, good works can be evidence, but not proof of salvation. Good works are important in the Christian life. I personally believe everyone who believes has good works. I personally believe that. I can't prove it, though. How do you prove that? I can't prove that. I can't live with somebody 24-7 and see what they're doing, what they're not. You know, good works also includes what you're not doing, right? So it's not just whether you say a silent prayer before you put your head down on your pillow at night or that you, you refuse to tell a bad joke or something. I mean, there's so many things that we cannot observe in people's lives. How could we ever be judges from their works about their salvation? You would have to be omniscient. Now, here's another thing that's often left out of this whole discussion that I don't find. What... How do you define a good work anyway? And all these people who are criticizing us for de-emphasizing good works, supposedly, never really define what a good work is. What, what, what they're looking for is, you know, maybe church service, evangelism, witnessing, reading the Bible, or things like that. But, you know, there's people who do that that are not saved. I know I'm thinking of a man right now. He was a pastor of a Baptist church in... in, in uh, uh, Zambia, and uh, he'll tell you he was not saved. 
until he discovered the grace gospel, and now I'm training his pastors for him online. So how do you know what a good work is? Well, my definition, I came to a little definition that completely removes it, removes it from the realm of the flesh. Obedience to God that glorifies him by doing his will and his power. I think we're safe with that definition of good works. Obedience to God that glorifies him by doing his will in his power. That's a good work. That removes our selfish motives. It removes our fleshly power and strength. It removes uh, its, its, its obedience to God um, according to his will, according to his power. It glorifies him, not us. How many people are doing good works to prove that they're saved or to, to glorify themselves? How many submit to legalism and the works of legalism out of a spirit of pride or, or fleshly pride? So good works can be evidence but not proof of salvation. I think we do admit that good works can be evidence. We can look at somebody's life and we can make a, a fair judgment of oh, that person looks like a Christian. Maybe they are a Christian. Maybe they must be a Christian. But we can't really know. Uh, even if we hear their testimony, sometimes we can't know, but I think that's, that's what you really need to do is hear their testimony. And how many works, how long, how often, and how long? That's a good question to ask them. How many works do you need to see? You know, much less know the motives for those works. How often do you need to see them? How long do they need to last? Those are questions that cannot be answered. And they can't quantify the good works. So how can we ever prove salvation by it? And then, of course, you need to deal with James chapter 2, 14 through 26, that faith without works is dead. Now, I don't have time to go into the passage here. I've got stuff in my books and grace notes and online, and everybody hears a lot of these guys have written about it very well. So you can, you can get some answers for it. The, the key thing, though, in that passage, I think, is defining what salvation is. And if you can help them see what they're being saved from, then you have a good answer to their objection. And I think the main thing you have to, the traditional interpretation is you're being saved from hell. How can faith without works save you from hell? But James isn't talking about hell in the context of the passage. And I don't have time to go, when I don't have time to go into a lengthy explanation of it, here's what I do. I abbreviate it. I say, look, let's look at it in context. The passage before it in James chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 13, is talking about being merciful, and those who don't show mercy will be judged without mercy. He's talking to Christians about a judgment. What, Christian, what judgment do Christians face? You tell me. Judgment seat of Christ. And then at the other bookend, at the end of the passage, chapter 3, verse 1, says you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, desire to be teachers lest you incur a greater judgment. Talking to believers who want to be teachers. What's the judgment? Judgment seat of Christ. With that as bookends, he's talking in James 2, 14 through 26, if you don't clothe the, the, the naked and feed the hungry, your faith is useless, and it's not going to save you from what? A negative judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, some people have interpreted salvation differently in that passage and other than hell, but that's, I think, an interpretation that fits within the, the context and has those bookends that show us that he's he has the judgment seat of Christ in mind, like most of the epistles do. 
The judgment seat of Christ is everywhere when you start looking for it. So I, that's my shortcut to answering that. And that's a doctrine that I think a lot of our critics don't really understand or appreciate. They rush, they rush to hell instead of stopping to think about the judgment that Christians face in the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, fifth objection is that free grace leads to false assurance of salvation. And I quote here from um, Wayne Grudem, because he has a lot to say about assurance. He says, free grace theology gives false assurance of eternal life to many people who profess faith in Christ, but then show no evidence in their pattern of life. And um, John MacArthur says, no lordship theology, you get the term, no lordship theology, tells obstinately ungodly people that they can rest secure in the hope of heaven. That is not genuine assurance. Real assurance springs from faith that works. Both uh, these critics, um, Grudem and MacArthur, say that assurance comes from faith that works. Grudem says if you have some works, you can have some assurance. If you have a lot of works, you can have a lot of assurance. But he never says you can have full assurance. John MacArthur publicly admitted that he's 99% sure he's saved when he was questioned about it in a public forum. I think I have it on tape. I have a quote. He says, I'm 99% sure I'm saved. They cannot say 100% sure because they're basing it on human performance, a subjective standard of performance, instead of the objective truth that they're, well, let's get to the answers. Salvation alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, allows one to have full assurance of salvation. We've got the only message that can give people full assurance of salvation. You realize the Arminians say that you can have assurance today if you're living right. But if you sin, tomorrow you may not have it. So the Arminians have assurance today, some of them. Now, the strong Calvinists would say uh, the elect can be sure that they're saved. But you don't know if you're elect until you die. Perseverance of the saints. So neither the Arminian system nor the Calvinist full assurance of salvation to the believer today. Only the free grace message does. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He said it is finished. He paid for our sins. I believe in him. I'm trusting in him for my eternal destiny, my salvation. And he's risen from the dead. His promise is true for me. And that seals it, not because of what I've done. God grades on the, on the cross, not on the curve. Anytime we, we turn that inward, take our eyes off of Christ, put them on our performance, or what, what Grudem likes to call a heartfelt faith or heartfelt repentance. He loves that word, heartfelt. Anytime we start looking for this heartfelt thing, we're going to get all messed up, especially introspective people who are always living by their feelings. And, uh, some Christians are very introspective, and they get all confused in this issue, especially when they read these guys. Good works cannot give full assurance because good works vary with everyone. It's relative. It's subjective. If somebody gets drunk every day and he becomes a Christian and he, he tells his pastor, Pastor, I only got drunk once this month. Is that progress or not? Who's going to judge that? I like to tell the story of my, my friend uh, who's preaching, and he, and he used the word heck or darn in his message, and a little woman comes up to him after the sermon and says, I don't appreciate you, you sinning during your sermon. 
And, and he said, and she explained, you know, you use those words. And he said, well, well, ma'am, to you it might be sin, but to me it's progress. Because <laughs> he used to be a, a, a druggy hippie guy. Uh, full assurance comes from believing objective truth, not subjective human performance or feelings. How can anybody be sure if it depended on my performance? And isn't that what... Isn't that what Romans 4 is teaching us about Abraham? It, the promise didn't depend on him. It depended on God's integrity, God's promise. If it depended on Abraham, we wouldn't be here today. If it depended on David, we wouldn't be here today. If it depended on you and me, we wouldn't be here today. Because we're always going to let God down in some way, form, or fashion. And that's why we can share our gospel with confidence. I don't, know, under, I don't understand how... The Arminians and the Kalas can share their gospel with integrity and honesty or any kind of confidence. The Arminian would say, hey, Jesus will save you today, and you can have eternal life. But to be honest, if you don't mess up. And, and the Calvinists would say, hey, Jesus might love you. He might have died for you. And you can find out if you live faithfully to the end of your life. You don't hear that from them, probably, but that would have to be their honest message. You and I can just straightforward say, Jesus Christ will save you from your sins. He died for you. You can believe in him, and you can know that you're saved. Isn't that wonderful? Free grace is freeing, isn't it? Well, let's, let's, let's go to the sixth and last one, and um, maybe we'll have a little time. Free grace leads to license. Um, some people use the word antinomianism. In fact, I think we have a quote here. Um, yeah, from John MacArthur. Clearly, no lordship salvation. He loves to use that term. No lordship theology does make obedience optional. And that is what makes no lordship theology antinomian. And... Um, then he writes, what is no lordship theology but the teaching that those who have died to sin can indeed live in it? That's what we teach, right? <laughs> we don't know anything about Romans 6. <laughs> uh, straw men, a straw man argument. Now, antinomian means against the law. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm against the law because Brother Ron Allen yesterday beautifully, one of the best messages I've ever heard about appreciating the law. But I am anomian in the sense that the law doesn't govern me. And so antinomian is a little bit of a, a misleading argument that they use there. Um, I'd like to know an example of someone, John, that uh, gives an example of somebody who says that um, we can still live in sin, that God wants us to still live in sin after we're saved. Who teaches that? Again, who teaches that? Or is that just one of their straw man arguments? Um, believers, no, oh, you know what? Give me an example of someone who does that. They say free grace theology uh, leads to license. And believers can, this, I get over, this overseas all the time. If you teach that, believers will do whatever they want to. Now, I'm asking you, I'm seriously asking you, do you know anybody? who has said, I'm free under grace, I can do anything I want to, and they've gone to live a lascivious 
licentious lifestyle, not just once or twice, but a lifestyle, and said, hey, I'm forgiven. Leave me alone. Do you know anyone like that? Let me see your hand. Okay. Now, one person. I have never met such a person. I've, never, I've heard secondhand anecdotal stories, but I've never met such a person. It's really a canard to distract. Now, here's what I say. Believers normally respond to grace by obeying and serving God. I tell people, I've never met that person you're talking about, but I know thousands of people who have heard the message of God's grace and salvation and, and fall in love with him and want to tell others about him and serve him with their lives and quit their jobs and good-paying incomes and go overseas to other countries uh, and, 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 and sacrifice time with family and money and, and everything to tell people that message. Now, I know thousands of those kinds of people. That's you and right here. So it's another straw man argument that teaching free grace leads to licentiousness. And it may, because Jude warns us about those who abuse grace, but I think he's talking about unbelievers, actually, in his passage. And, but Paul faced that also. He faced that argument in Romans chapter 6. And we all know Romans chapter 6 is saying, Paul is saying, no, we don't continue in sin. You have, a, you have a new master. You have a new life. You have a new position. You have a new power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to explain the power of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life through chapter 8. We know what Paul, Paul dealt with that objection. He dealt with it soundly. And we know what Romans 6 says, and we teach that. And, and then we also, I also remind people that grace trains us to live righteously in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through, tw through 13. Um, For the grace of God has appeared, teaching us that denying um, worldliness and ungodliness, um, but to live, what, righteously and godly in this present age, something like that. The point is, is that the grace of God has appeared and teaches us to live a godly life, not the other way around. We don't live a godly life, and then we discover grace or get grace. The grace of God has to come and train us. The word is, is from which we get with the word pedagogy. Pedagogue, it trains us to, into a godly life. And believers will be held accountable for how they live their lives. You see, again, those who don't have the concept or the theology of a judgment seat of Christ uh, lack any kind of control over Christians who sin or any kind of way of holding them accountable. But the Scriptures hold believers very accountable at the judgment seat of Christ. That's why it's very important that we teach it and preach it and remind people of it. And... Uh, I like to tell people, no, God doesn't let his children run wild. No parent would do that. No loving parent does that. So God has temporal disciplines. He has uh, uh, eternal loss of rewards. There are consequences uh, that we'll discover at the judgment seat of Christ when we are evaluated for how we lived our Christian lives. God does hold us accountable, and sin is a serious issue. It hurts God. It hurts me. It hurts you when we sin. So we teach against sin. Um, it, we don't encourage uh, sin, uh, license, uh, or promote that at all. In fact, uh, I'm working on a book project with the uh, Grace School of Theology uh, on sanctification, living by grace, because we want to counter. We've been dealing so much with the justification issues, the salvation issues, that we sometimes are criticized for not dealing with sanctification issues. That's because of we're always being attacked on justification. 
But uh, so we're writing a book about some sanctification issues, and uh, that's supposed to be out early next year. So um, I think that's all I had. Uh, my website has resources, a podcast also that we've started this summer. But uh, we got a little bit of time left. Now, I covered six objections. I thought that's about all I could get through. There are others, you know, that we run into. And uh, if you have any questions or comments on what we've said or other objections that you run into, um, you can, we can hear from you right now. But another one is that free grace is a new and recent historical aberration. You know, that's, a, that's the one that Wayne Grudem uses. Uh, but see, yeah, the Lordship salvation is a recent controversy. But th at the heart of the Lordship salvation is the idea that works can give us assurance or not, whether works can give us assurance or not. That's really the issue. And that has been a controversy since the beginning of the church, really. In fact, I read a most fascinating book about the controversy in the first colony of Plymouth, Massachusetts. Uh, be, and it was a controversy involving John Cotton and Jane uh, Hutchison, was it? Anne Hutchison. And it was called the Free Grace. The book title of the book is something like the Free Grace Controversy. And they used the term free grace to describe the view that they were arguing. The Calvinists wanted to say that works were important for assurance. And John Cotton kind of trying to mollify everybody. But Hutchison took a very strong stand. Anyway, it goes way back. It's, a, it's always been the argument about the relationship of works and assurance. You can call it whatever you want to. Today, it's called mainly the Lordship Salvation issue. But it's not a recent controversy. Uh, and another objection is that free grace cheapens grace. My simple response to that was, how much does grace cost? <laughs> how much does grace cost anyway? What's, what's grace mean to you? Now, here's the interesting thing about Wayne Gruden's book that I point out in my review of his book. If you check Wayne Grudem's book where he criticizes us, in his subject index, you'll read faith. He's got all these pages listed. Uh, repentance, all these pages listed. He doesn't even list grace in his subject index. You won't even find the word except, I think, in describing free grace theology. He uses the word to describe us. But you won't find a description or a definition of grace in his book. That's a little indication that he might go off in the wrong direction. You've got to understand grace to end up with the right view of salvation. So free grace cheapens grace. Well, how much does it cost? Free grace separates sanctification and justification. Now, I don't like to use the word separate. I like to use the word distinguishes. We distinguish theologically. The theology is all about definitions, Charles Ryrie used to say. It's all about definitions. Justification, declared righteous, sanctification, we're being made righteous or separated unto God. One's a process, well, sanctification can be a positional thing too, but it's also usually described as a process. We distinguish them in definition and in our theology, but we don't say they're not related. You can't be sanctified unless you're justified. And justified gives us the basis and the motivation for our sanctification. So to completely be accused of completely separating them, making them yeah, detached and unrelated to one another is, again, a, a straw man argument. Let's hear from you. Do you have any questions, comments, uh, other criticisms that you hear, objections? Yeah.
what do I think that I'm repeating? What do I think Billy Graham means at the end of his gospel message when he says, believe and repent? I think he means turn from sins. I don't think he used to preach that way early in his, his ministry, but I think under the influence, my opinion, uh, in reading his biography and so forth, under the influence of so many that he would minister with, I think there was heavy pressure on him to repeat, preach repentance and commitment. Uh, commitment also, he adds in there, commit your life um, to Christ. Repent, turn from your, believe, repent, turn from your sins, and commit your life to Christ, I think is basically his message. I don't think he means that, no. Um, not the way I've heard him preach it. I have all the respect of the world for Billy Graham. I, he was one of my heroes. I read everything I could about him. But his message kind of... A lot of evangelists have not been careful with their messages, in my opinion. And, uh, and that was my sole motivation for going on in my theological training, because I'm not a theologian at heart, like, like Jody Dillo, he's a born theologian. I'm not. I'm an evangelist at heart. I'm a theological evangelist. Jody's an evangelistic theologian. There's a difference. So I wanted to bring some credibility to the evangelistic message. That's, that's, my whole, that's what I'm all about. And, and I, I, I love somebody like Billy Graham and what he's doing, but I cringe that he's not clear on his message. And, and other evangelists are doing the same thing. So I said, let's bring some credibility to the message. And uh, that's why I do what I do. Yeah, it's a great challenge. Uh, the comment basically had to do when you're dealing with people, make sure that you understand what, how they're defining things and how you're defining things or else we're just passing each other in our arguments. So what do they mean by grace? Uh, you know, what do they mean by faith? Uh, what do they mean by judgment? They, they combine the judgment seat. Of, they, they're definite, they think there's one great judgment when we'll be lumped together with unbelievers and judged according to our works. That's our final justification. So, yeah, you have to understand their language and don't take it for granted. I mean, look, the John MacArthur's ministry is called Grace to You, right? Grace Community Church. I mean, uh, People hear the word grace, and, and we say, oh, yeah, they believe in grace. Uh, not free grace. <laughs> so be, be careful about that. Thanks. Uh, I guess you're in front, so go ahead. Yeah. I can't see who's who. He argues, uh, in this whole, whole issue, he likes to say, well, we're a recent view, and we're dismissing all the history of the Reformers and so forth. My answer to that is, when did the Reformation end? Did the Bible study stop with the Reformation? They began a good thing, but they didn't live long enough to refine their ideas, and they argued, they started arguing about and disagreeing with each other. So, you know, and people changed Calvin's theology, the Westminster uh, confession and so forth, they don't exactly follow the reformers now. So are we to stop our Bible study and just settle with them? Or it, the, the tradition of the reformers is they, they, they let the scriptures lead them instead of their theology push them. Now, what people have done today is they've taken the reformers and let the, their theology push them instead of the scriptures lead them. But in the tradition of the reformers, I want the scriptures to continue to lead me. So we should continue to reform our views as we continue to understand more and more about the scriptures.
So to camp out on the reformers and say that's the, the end-all, be-all of truth, I, I, we know that that's not true because even their followers revised their, their truth. It's my short answer, but we're right behind you there. And this will be the last question. Yeah, at the end when he talks about Abraham was justified by works, I think that's talking about from the human perspective. Yeah, he's not talking about a divine justification there. Yeah, good comment about James chapter 2. Well, thank you very much. I want to close in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for that we can have confidence in your message. Uh, we don't hold it proudly, but humbly. And we want to influence people humbly towards that truth. Uh, we thank you that your grace is free. We thank you that salvation is free. We thank you, and we want to serve you. We want to spread that message. We commit our lives to you. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices because of all that you've done for us. And, uh, and people who live in this confusion and have these objections, give us grace to answer them graciously. Thank you for the meetings that we've had, and bless us the rest of this day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.